I've been I've been hauling. All right, Hebrews chapter five this morning. Hebrews chapter five, if you would stand. While you're standing, if you would find First Timothy chapter four and put your finger there and turn back over to Hebrews. I want to kind of explain what I'm going to do this morning. Um, I don't want to just jump right into the text in Hebrews 5 of really the rebuke to, um, to these Christians who could not hear what or comprehend what um, the author of Hebrews was saying. Um, I, I want to look at, at, we're going to go to Hebrews or 1 Timothy 4 here in a moment. And the, the title of the sermon is The Danger of Immaturity. This is going to be the first part uh, of a two-part series, which next week will be back, not a series, but a sermon. Um, next week we'll be back in Hebrews, and we're going to read both of these texts. And you'll see what I'm trying to accomplish here in a little bit in, in this message. Um, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 says, "...of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing." For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That's another way of saying old folks. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now turn over to 1 Timothy 4. And this is where we're going to be for the sermon. Look at verse 13. Paul writing to Timothy, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership or pastors or or, or elders. Or presbytery is actually the word. Fancy word for pastor. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that you would bless our time together as we look at your word. I pray you would encourage us, rebuke us, edify us, whatever is necessary this morning. I pray, God, that you would accomplish this through your word. Lord, we know that your word does not return void to you. It accomplishes that which you desire. So, Father, I pray this morning that what we know not, You would teach us, and what we are not, You would make us. Conform us to the image of Your Son, Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. While we've been working through the book of Hebrews, what the author has set forth, in particular in chapter 5, is to show that Jesus is a greater high priest than the earthly high priest. He, he previously laid out the questions there in the first part of chapter 5, the qualifications for the earthly high priest. And then he showed how Jesus has met those qualifications perfectly, therefore making him a better high priest. And in reality, 
making Him the ultimate high priest to end all high priests. And what He does though, is He begins to compare Him to Melchizedek and not Aaron, the the Levitical priest. And and, and really, what we see in Melchizedek, I kind of mentioned it last week, but understand, Melchizedek came along 400 years before the priesthood that we see in Aaron came along. And God is establishing some things for us. For, for instance, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. We see later on when they give the law that tithing was part of the law. But also, he's establishing the priesthood before he established the priesthood. You see what I'm talking about? So, there was, there was a lot of things for Mel, in Melchizedek, and, and these, these Christians couldn't receive it. Now, Brother Brown, I need your help for a moment this morning. I need you to confirm or, or tell me I'm wrong in a couple of things, all right? So, as I understand it, you take a calf, and about three to six months, they get weaned. Is that right? Get them off the, the, the mama, put them on grain or whatever, hay and whatnot. Let's suppose for a moment that you left that calf on that cow for a year, two years, three years without any other kind of nutrition, just the calf. Am I correct in thinking that it would probably get malnourished? It might even do some harm to the mom. It might even eventually kill both of them, right? Is that, is that correct in surmising that? Now, let's think about it in terms of a baby. We've got a brand new baby, right, in the, in the church. She's getting fed with some things that her little stomach can handle, some things that are good for her to grow. Well, there's eventually going to come a time where that's not going to satisfy her anymore. My little brother's a lot bigger than I am. About eight days old, they were having to put cereal in his milk because he wasn't getting enough. Right? He was demanding more nutrition. There's going to come a point in time where she is going to demand more nutrition. She's going to need something more. Because one day it's going to come, she's going to need some meat. Right? Now... Let's translate that to the church. Our churches are full of infants and toddlers and sparsely, sparsely littered with adults. Now, I obviously do not mean that literally, right? I mean, we've got a few kids in here, but we've primarily got a bunch of adults. These spiritual children have been content to feed on the sugar-coated messages presented to you by pastors who are too lazy to do the hard work of intentional study, in-depth Bible study. Now, the problem is twofold, and this is what I'm going to address this morning. The problem of immaturity in the church. Why are so many churches, why are so many Christians, why do they fall by the wayside when trials come? Why do they just give up? Why is it we have, we have such... We talk about a Christianity that is so grand and so glorious, but yet it doesn't seem to be that. The first problem, and I'll repeat myself here, is so, lies solely at the feet of the pastor, of the pastors. Pastors today are lazy in general. Right, look, here's, the, here's an honest truth. I could go online, Google search, find a sermon of what I wanted to preach, copy, paste, print, ready-made sermon. Ready-made sermon. I don't have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and do study, word studies. I don't have to spend hours writing and typing and getting all my notes compiled so that I can feed you. I, I could find a sermon on, on any topic or on any passage I wanted to preach. And sad to say, that's what a lot of pastors are doing. They're lazy. 
We're, we're too lazy to, to do in-depth Bible study. And you know the purpose for in-depth Bible study? It's to nourish my soul and to feed me, but it's to lead you into greener pastures. It's to lead you to a place of spiritual maturity. The, the, the Bible is not just a book that we get up and we animate and we jump around and holler and scream and then you walk out unchanged. No, the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God is meant to transform your life. And that's why care must be given. Look, the Apostle Paul, in a way, addresses this very thing in his first letter to Timothy. And we read that. Let, let's look at our text. Look at verse 13. What does he say? Until I come. Now, he is anticipating going to see Timothy. He said, until I get there, until I can encourage you in the church, here is what you need to do, Timothy. Notice, first of all, he says, give attention. Give attention. That word, give attention, he says, is basically, I want you to embrace some things. I want you to take care of some things. I want these things to ever be before your eyes and your face. I want these things to be some, some things that you're constantly doing. The tense of this short phrase to, to give attention is it's continuous ongoing action. In other words, Timothy, don't just do it once, but do it over and over and over and over and over again. In other words, it's something that we're constantly doing, right? It's something that's continuous, ongoing action. It's something that's ever before us. The give attendance means to pay attention. He said, I want you to be aware of some things. Most pastors are not aware of some things, right? I mean, we're, and not just all of the business of the church, that it's kind of like we get in a mindset of just, all I got to do is preach and think that's going to fix everything. Well, preaching in general does fix a lot of issues, but nonetheless, he, want, he says, I want you to, to pay attention to these things and I want you to keep on paying attention and keep on paying attention and keep on paying attention. Now, in thinking of this give attention as a nautical term, it means to hold a ship in a direction. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat. In my experience working offshore on these platforms and rigs, the boat captain would back up to the platform, you'd get on the boat or they'd put you on by crane and he had a place he was going. There might have been another platform, seven, eight, nine miles, whatever. And he would set that boat on a course on that platform. He had a, he had a, a radar if he needed it for, for fog or whatnot. But he was always making corrections. As he, was, as he sat on that platform, he was making corrections. He'd get off course a little bit, right? And he'd have to come back to the right or come back to the left. Sit on, but he never lost sight of where he was going. And think about that. Last night, Tiff and I got on the plane. There was a particular destination that she and I had in mind, but even more than that, the plan was mapped out by the pilot. He had a destination in mind as well. It wasn't like our ticket said from Fort Myers to Dallas-Fort Worth, and we got on the plane, and next thing you know, we end up in Chicago, right? Or end up in Philadelphia, or end up in California. No, we knew we were coming to Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, and the pilot set his course to Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Now think of that in terms of a Christian. Folks, there is a course that you and I have been set upon when God redeemed you. Now ultimately, that course, that the goal is heaven, right? We're, we're working towards heaven. But in the meantime, Christ's likeness is what we're striving after. 
We have been set on a course to be like Jesus. Now, we can't do that perfectly, obviously. Now, in in this idea of holding one's course, we get an idea of this in Luke 9.51. We'll not read it, but the, the Scripture basically says that Jesus set His face to Jerusalem. There was nothing that deterred Jesus from going to Jerusalem. There was nothing that deterred Him from doing the will of God. He set His face, He set His face on a course to go to the cross. What the Apostle is wanting Timothy to pay attention to is not only for his own benefit, it's for the benefit of others. When we say, give attention to reading, give attention to exhortation, give attention to doctrine, it's not just for my benefit. These things don't just benefit me. They benefit you as well. Now, what are the things Paul wants Timothy to pay attention to? Well, he lists three things here primarily. And this is <clears throat> excuse me, primarily where we're going to be in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 4. He lists three, probably what we could call distinctives. The first, if you notice, is reading. Now, we talked about reading in Sunday school this morning. Jesus goes to the temple... They hand him a scroll from Isaiah 61. Open it. It's a public reading of Scripture that he reads that, and it's a prophecy about himself. Now, some, and they would be wrong in doing so, would assume that this is talking about the public reading or the private reading of Scripture. That's not what that's talking about. It is the public reading of the Scripture in the assembly of the church. Now, every Sunday morning... We have a passage that we read from, usually from the Psalms. It's essentially a call to worship. It's essentially proclaiming who our God is and that He is worthy of worship. And this is done intentional. It's not just, I don't wake up on Sunday morning and say, hey, let's just read a passage before I have to get up and preach. This is a, at one time, and in many churches today even, that it was an integral part of the worship service. Church I pastored in Louisiana. Talking about incorporating this into the worship service, you know what the question was? Why? Why do we want to read the Bible more? Why not? We're a church. We're Christians. The Bible is our our guide, our handbook, our manual. Why would we not want to know more of this God that we profess? It's talking about the public reading of Scripture. It refers to the public reading of the Old Testament, specifically in Timothy's day. It was a portion, and we talked about this in Sunday school, that was appointed to be read in the worship gathering. And what we saw in Luke 4 this morning was the portion that had been determined to be read was, Luke, was, was Isaiah 61. And here Jesus comes, and they ask Him to read it as a prophecy about Himself. Now, there were, there were people who were given the duty of public reading of the Scripture. In the gathering, they were given that specific duty. Now, they not only got up and read the Scripture but they explained or gave the sense of the Scripture as well. We see this, if you'll turn it, hold your finger in 1 Timothy, look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra and Nehemiah could actually be one book. These books were written to encourage those who were leaving the Babylonian captivity, going back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And then the second wave uh, that we see in Nehemiah, they come to to rebuild the wall. 
that protected um, uh, Jerusalem. But I want to bring your... You know what? Let's just go ahead and read verse 1 through 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. 1 through 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to read. Or commanded Israel, I'm sorry. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood... I'm not going to say all those names. Y'all can figure those out later. And we'll go to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book... And these are priests. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people... And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Why do we stand when we read the Word of God? Reverence. Honor. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, uh, Jeshua, Benai, let's skip on down to that. Help the other people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Now notice verse 8. Notice verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now, this is the picture that we get when Paul is telling Timothy, give attention to reading. We see these people gather in the open square, and they call for Ezra to bring the book. And they read from morning to midday. Do you know how long that is? About five to six hours. Now think about that. These people heard the Word of God read for five to six hours. I hadn't seen nobody look down, but some of y'all might be looking at your watch a little bit and saying, man, Pastor Brian, I need to go on and get finished. We got lunch to get. It's 12 o'clock, right? They heard God's Word read, and they were attentive. It wasn't... Looking at this, look. No, they were attentive. They heard that, and they just, it's not just here, but it was given the sense of it as well. Ezra begins to read, and they don't grow weary whatsoever. Consider these people, though, had been in captivity for 70 years. They had not heard this in 70 years, some of them. Some of them have never heard it. They had been in captivity in Babylon. And the first thing they do, they get the temple, they get the wall, they build a platform that probably had a podium where they could read the law of God. But Ezra didn't, didn't just read it. These readers that, they, that was listed didn't just read it. It says it gave the sense of the text. They didn't read it and then just leave it alone. When we read in particular, not a psalm, but a passage that I'm preaching from, do you notice I don't just read it and leave it? I read it and I try to explain it. Why? 
So you can have the understanding of the text, not for me to display my knowledge, but so that we can see how it's going to apply to our life on a daily basis. One of my study Bibles note had this about giving the sense of the text. The law is not only read, but also explained to ensure that the people grasp the meaning. Have you ever read a book and you had no idea what it was saying? Like that there was no, you had no comprehension at all. Did it benefit you any? Absolutely not. It doesn't benefit us to just hear something and not be able to comprehend it. The doctrine of the pers- perspicuity or clarity of Scripture is that the things necessary for salvation can be understood from the Bible, listen, without special techniques or higher education. I'm going to put this in plain English for you. You don't need a seminary degree to understand the Bible. I'm living proof of it, folks. Blue collar, high school education, a little bit of college. But you know what? It's got by God's grace that He would impart this knowledge to us. Look, this truth, though, does not eliminate the need for faithful exposition of the Scripture by trained people. Now, my contention would be this. I would not in any way. I've made this statement a few times, and I'll continue to say it this way. I would not, I would not discount whatsoever someone going to seminary, working hard to get the knowledge, to get that degree. That's my desire is to go to the seminary one day. Um, hopefully soon. Trying to get all those details worked out. But, going to a seminary does not a pastor make. And now, a lot of that stuff is good for discussing in ivory towers where theologians and scholars, there was a, there was a, 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 well, was a professor at one of the, some seminary in, in Philadelphia, Westminster, I think it was. This dude, I mean, he's using words I've never heard before. But he could also bring it down to a level that you could understand as well. And I, I, told, I told Tiffany, I said, I'd love to be in his seminary class. That would be interesting to be there. But nonetheless, nonetheless, though a seminary degree does not compare to a man called by God who gets alone with God so that he can be taught by God to teach God's people. Right? I, I mean... Someone who would take God's Word and fall on their face before God's Word and say, God, I have to know Your Word and will dedicate themselves to the study of God's Word. That doesn't come from getting a seminary degree. That that comes from knowing that the calling of God to teach and preach His Word is on your life. I, I mean, the mentality is that I have to know so I can help the people of God. Folks, this is really the explanation of this text. The, the, the reading and the giving of the sense is the duty of the pastor. The pastor must stir up the gift. That is to bring to a roaring blaze. When we get a fire started and it starts dying down, you poke it with a poker, flames up, throw logs on it, what happens? You've got a roaring blaze. That, that's what the pastor must do with the gift that has been sovereignly given to him by God. And that, that, that stirring up, that, that uh, bringing it to a roaring blaze comes from spending time in prayer and in study of God's Word. The response of these people when they heard the Word of God from Ezra was a joyful response. Amen and amen, right? It wasn't, that, and they were being attentive. 
Here's what Paul, and I believe in 1 Timothy, is communicating to, to, to him. It's the importance and the value of God's Word in the life of the church. Folks, we now more than ever must stand on the sufficiency of Scripture. That is sufficient to answer all of our questions and meet all of our needs speaking doctrinally. Look, the Bible's not just a book that we have a wave around and quote, but it's a supernatural Word from God that must be diligently studied, rightly explained, and fervently practiced. This is not a book of sayings that we put on a calendar and usually take them out of context to get some, to get some encouragement. This is a book that we must learn so that we know how to live our life. Our ministry at Valley View Baptist Church must be built on the sufficiency of God's Word. And folks, if, if, if God takes me home or whatever may happen and there's a pastor comes after me and he doesn't believe in the sufficiency of God's Word, you better run him out of here on a rail. You better get rid of him because he will lead you into places that you don't need to go. The next thing. So we see the public reading of Scripture. That there's a... a, a There's a value in just hearing the Word. But notice the next thing that Paul tells Timothy to pay attention to is exhortation, verse 13. Till I come give attendance to reading, now exhortation. This word comes from the same root word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit that would come when He ascended back to heaven. It's the paraclete. It's the one who comes alongside to aid, comfort, encourage, and exhort The Greek writers use this word to describe a legal advisor, pleader, proxy, or advocate. You want to see where we get a good picture of that? Turn to Romans chapter 8 in the role of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us, helps in our weaknesses, For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Let me tell you first of all what this is not. It is not some secret, jibber-jabberish prayer language. That's not what that is. Have you ever had something you're praying for or have something happen in your life that you just, all you could do is groan? You didn't know how to pray? That's what that's talking about is the Holy Spirit as our aid, as our advocate goes to God with our prayers on our behalf, intercedes for us. We're talking about an all-knowing God that He knows what we have need of before we even ask. And He knows that we don't know how to pray many times, most often. And that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf. What a blessing that is that he would aid that that's what God has given us in the Holy Spirit. Now, I've said before that Jesus was constrained by his humanity. He could not be everywhere at the same time. But the Holy Spirit can. So what Jesus could not do on this earth, the Holy Spirit does in his absence. Now, there's something even better than that. We see in 1 John that Christ is is termed our substitutionary intercessory advocate. Christ designates the Holy Spirit. Turn to John 14. 
He designates the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, as the comforter, as the aid. But notice what He calls Him. John 14, verse 16. Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you. How long? Does your Bible say forever? Mine says forever. You understand, in heaven, we're still going to have the Holy Spirit within us. We won't have less of the Holy Spirit. We won't have more of the Holy Spirit, but we'll still have the Holy Spirit. Now, He calls Him another comforter, which means another of the same or equal quality and not another of a different quality. Let me explain that. When Jesus said, I'm giving you another comforter to take my place, He didn't give us something less than Himself. Think about that. He did not give us something less than Himself. The Holy Spirit is designated by Jesus as equal with Himself. So didn't, Jesus didn't say, hey guys, y'all have had me here for three and a half years. See ya, i got to give you something less than myself. He gave us the Holy Spirit equal to Himself. And He done it, He has done it to every believer. In other words, Jesus didn't leave us with anything less when He left us with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Man, what a blessing. This new paraclete, this comforter, the Holy Spirit, was to witness concerning Jesus Christ. Um, see, we just read John 14, 26. Oh, let's look at John 14, 26. We looked at 16. Look at 26. But the Helper, or the Comforter, or the Aid, or the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things speaking to the disciples now, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. You know what the Bible is? The Holy Spirit bring to remembrance to the disciples, the apostles, the things that Jesus taught them in their three and a half year ministry. That's what, it, that's what we have in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit that moved on these holy men of God in writing the Scriptures that we now have in hand. That's who this is. He is the one that brought them to this remembrance. Look at John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. Let me tell you something else the Holy Spirit does not do. Cause people to fall out on the floor, bark like a dog, laugh like a hyena. That's not what the Holy... You know what the Holy Spirit does? He testifies of Jesus. He points you to Jesus. He will not point you away from God. He will not point you away from Christ. He will not cause you to contradict anything in the Scripture. We need to grab a hold of that. Look, Baptists have let others scare us into talking about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a real entity in the Godhead. And God has given given Him to us to aid us, to comfort us, to seal us to the day of redemption? You want What is the hope that we have in Christ? It's that He's given us His Spirit to help us. It's not this spooky thing that we don't know much about. The Bible speaks clearly. But He also guides us into all truth. Let me give you an example of this. We're not going to look at the text, but in, in Acts chapter 8, Philip, a deacon... Is preaching. He's preaching the gospel. 
God comes to him and says, I want you to go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. On his way, who does he meet? The Ethiopian eunuch, right? Sees him riding along. Here's him reading Isaiah. Isaiah 53, by the way. And he looks at the Ethiopian eunuch and he says, hey, do you have someone or, or do you comprehend what you're reading? Do you understand what it is that you're reading? And he looks at him and he says, how can I accept some man show me? The scripture goes on to say that the eunuch desired of Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Now the word sit here is not like me telling my wife to say, hey, come sit down next to me. I want you close to me. I want you to come sit next to me. It's saying, hey, come sit next to me because I want to talk with you. I want to connect with you on a deeper level. What he's telling Philip is, hey, I want you to come up in here and sit in this chariot with me so that we can talk about what I'm reading and I don't understand. The word desire is a call for aid, a call for help. That word we see is beseeched in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul, after giving his 11 chapters of theological discourse on the gospel, calls the Romans to action. And what he's saying in this desiring and this call to action, hey, Philip, get up here. I need some understanding of this text. I want you to do that. Folks, that's exhortation. Me, me preaching right now is exhortation, but sitting across the table from you talking about the Bible is exhortation as well. And by the way, looking at our text in Hebrews, that's essentially what he is rebuking them for. Is that you're dull of hearing, you don't know enough of the basic principles of the oracles of Christ to have a conversation with someone and lead them on to perfection in spiritual maturity. That's all of our responsibility, folks. You have a responsibility to study the Word of God so that you can help others. Look, my primary role as a pastor is to teach to help all. But it even gets nuanced more than that is that I can disciple you on a one-to-one basis. This is not my primary means of discipleship. But that in my relationship with you, we can come to the house and have coffee and we can talk about the Bible or we can go out and eat and have, talk about the Bible. Talk about those things. For what? For your benefit, for your building up, for your edification. Folks, that's exhortation. That's uh, uh, coming to the aid of someone. The third distinction that Paul gives to Timothy, if notice in verse 13, is doctrine. It's doctrine. Church, I pastored. I had a lady ask me, "Can I have doc? Can I? <clears throat> excuse me. Can I have Jesus without all that doctrine and theology stuff?" Now, I, I know those are words probably sometimes foreign to some of us, but and I'll give some brief explanations here in a moment. But that in itself is a doctrinal statement. When you say, "I want Jesus," but I don't. Basically, I don't want the Bible. You're making a statement of what you believe. And simply put, doctrine is a simple statement of belief. When we preach the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, we're stating what we believe. As a matter of fact, we Baptists have been, for ages, have been confessional people. That is, and we've got one right now, y'all know what it is? Baptist Faith and Message 2000. That is a confessional document. It states clearly what we believe about the Scripture. 
We believe it to be the, un, the, the inerrant, infallible, inspired, sufficient Word of God. It's a simple statement that requires a great depth of study for us to understand. He says, I want you to give attention to doctrine. So to say I want Jesus, but I don't want all that theology and doctrine stuff. The reality is that we'll see is theology and doctrine has practical implications for our life. One of the definitions for doctrine is a statement of belief or the content of teaching. Doctrine, it's got two meanings in, in, in the Bible. Look, here's the truth. If we're going to truly worship the Jesus of the Bible, we need theology and we need doctrine to shape our belief so that we can worship in spirit and in truth. Look, theology and doctrine is not just for pastors and seminary professors and theologians to sit in ivory towers and discuss. Folks, these things are practical for you and I. The, 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 if you take into consideration the doctrine of Christ, it involves the person and the work of Christ. The person of who is Jesus. Now, we heard a wonderful message on, on God with us and speaking Jesus the other night. Thursday, was it Thursday night? Yeah, Thursday night. And the devoted Balcom guy was telling you about him. And he made this statement. He said that everyone likes Jesus until you start to define who he is. If you think about it, the Muslims... Yeah, Jesus is a good dude. He's a prophet. But you start defining who he is as the Son of God, it's going to get ugly real quick. As a matter of fact, he preached from, I believe it was Galatians chapter 2 or Galatians 4. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But he made this statement. He said, the title of my sermon is God with us. That's the official title. He said, the unofficial title is I can make them burn that Christmas tree down. And what he was talking about was that the most expensive Christmas tree ever put up was over $11 million in guess where of all places? The Middle East. The Middle East, who don't worship the God that we worship, who doesn't worship the Jesus that we worship. And he went into defining who Jesus is, that he's God with us. And folks, when, you, when you, you want to start separating religions and denominations, you start defining who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He's not just some good dude. He's not just some good teacher. He is the Son of God. So when we talk about the doctrine of Christ, we're talking about the person, who Jesus is. The second in the Trinity. The Son, sub, subject to the Father, in, in submission to the Father. But then we also talk about His work. What did He do? He went to Calvary. Amen? He went to Calvary. He suffered in the place that you and I deserve to suffer. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. He bore upon Him our sin. And He took the rejection of God the Father as God poured out His wrath upon Him for our sin. That's simplified the work of Christ. So you can see doctrine is important, is it right? We are, we, doctrine teaches us who Jesus is. Now, the second definition involved involves the act of teaching. The second definition of doctrine involves the act of teaching, and that's what's being talked about here. This would be the gift of teaching. This would be uh, that is sovereignly given by God to certain individuals, in particular pastors, to instruct, to edify, to admonish, to exhort, and you know what? Even rebuke if necessary. 
Now, I've said this before and I will still contend that the most ignored qualification in all of 1 Timothy 3 is the ability to teach the Scripture. I was talking with a guy at the conference. We was talking about 1 Timothy. And you can go home and read this if you want. You see that I'm not lying to you. If you read 1 Timothy 1, the, the, the understanding you get from that is Paul's telling Timothy, get your doctrine right. Make sure you know what you believe. You go to chapter 2, pray for everybody, right? You pray in particular the church. You pray for leaders. You pray for kings and all that. Talking about our leaders. And then we come to chapter 3 and it gives a qualification of a pastor. Now, here's our problem. We run immediately to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we want to know, this literally came to me in a, in a, in a, a, a search committee meeting. Do you drink? No. How many times have you been married? Once. How many times have your wife been married? Once. Do you listen to country music? Now what does that have to do with my ability to pastor if I listen to country music? Kind of like the 80s country music, right? I mean, that's some old school country music right there. But nonetheless, you know what they never asked me, Brother Brandt? Can you teach the Bible? Matter of fact, let me give you some instruction. If you're ever searching for another pastor, this is the question you need to ask him. Can you teach the Bible? Before getting him to come preach, you meet with him and say, can you teach the Bible? And then you pull out, just pick any passage and say, explain this to us and see what he does. If he says, oh, man, I need to go get my commentary, you just continue to search. See, and that doesn't mean that we know all of Scripture, but can he in general explain? I mean, could he teach that? But, I mean, if I would have been asked that early on, I would have probably got stumbled. I probably wouldn't have been pastoring that church. But nonetheless, that's the thing that gets overlooked more than anything. If you ever find yourself in a position where you're looking for another pastor, you better make sure he can teach the Word of God. Because if not, you're going to get someone in here that's just going to give you some crumbs, give you some little peppermint candy or something, and go about his way. But also within this doctrine, within this act of teaching, we see the authority of the teacher. This position, in and of itself, teaching, preaching, is authoritative, right? But that authority comes from who? God. It comes from, I have no authority outside of God. I have not the authority to lord over you and keep you under my thumb. <clears throat> the only authority I have is to instruct you in the ways of righteousness and confront you with your sin from the Scripture. Therefore, teaching is a gift given by God to His church to instruct them in the ways of God. That's the importance of biblical teaching and preaching. Now, no matter how hard we try, we can't separate worship from theology and doctrine. The deeper our understanding of God, the higher our worship will be. You want to know how the conference went this week for me? I cried the whole time. As we exalted God through preaching, exalted God through singing, and it, I mean, just to contemplate that God, the sovereign of all, would reach down to some nobody and save him. Folks, that ought to cause us to erupt in worship of this God. These are the issues that we are faced with. Now, the teaching early on in the church was considered with what's called the charismata, the charismatic gifts. That was the apostolic gifts. And it was for the purpose of instructing the church. Now, 
I said this problem with immaturity in the church was twofold, and I've hammered the pastors, right? I, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm under the microscope right now. But you know what? There's another responsibility, and it falls at your feet. It falls due in part to the laziness of many Christians. And that's sad. And look, I'm not saying this to beat you up. Look, I, th- there's a lot of stuff that we're faced with in our world today. And folks, that's why we need to run to the Scripture. That's why we need to be well-versed in the Scripture. That's why we need to be grounded in the Scripture. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow there." The sincere milk of the word talks about the, 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 the meat, the, the things that have the most nutrients. And we could elaborate on this verse. But let me boil it down to you this way. Your demand of me ought to be to feed you the unadulterated, pure, guileless, perfect sufficient Word of God. When you walk through that door, when you see me in the fellowship hall, you ought to say, Pastor, what's on the table today? And if it ain't prime rib, don't even talk to me. Right? That's where we ought to be in our demands. When we come into the assembly, you ought to demand to hear the full counsel of God. And let me tell you, it will be offensive to us. You ought to demand to be led into greener pastures. You ought to demand to be led into deeper waters. We need to take our floaties off and get out of the kiddie pool and get into the deep end where the big kids are. Folks, we're, faced, we're, we're, we're being faced with some things right now that if we have a weak faith and a weak understanding of the Scripture, it will cause us to fall in the day of, day of adversity. And that's the whole purpose for this. It's not so I can brag about how much knowledge I have and then I can go to a pastor's conference and talk about how knowledgeable the the folks that I get to pastor are. It is for your growth and my growth as well. This is so that we will not fall in the day of adversity. So this is the issue when we get back to Hebrews 5 next week. The author is facing with these Christians. They had most likely neglected the discipline of growing in grace and knowledge. Therefore, they were stunted in their growth to the point they were not able to comprehend what would follow. So what happened, he said, is you have to be taught again the basic principles of the oracles of God, which is basically the gospel. You're having to be taught the gospel again. You can't move on. So the author takes a break and he rebukes them for their lack of maturity. As we're closing this morning, may we not be guilty of this very thing. May we not be guilty of being stunted in our growth. May we not be guilty of dull, about being dull of hearing, in which it is to be lazy in obedience. And if we are, if we search our hearts and we find that we, we have kind of pushed those things away, that we would readily repent and turn to the meat of the Word. Let's pray.